0: And Welcome to Episode 119. This is the introduction for Crow 777 Radio, the podcast. Jason Lingren's with me today, and we're going to talk about one heck of a thing, central banking, which is pretty much central to almost every show we have ever covered topics on here. I'm going to open up here with a quote from Montague Norman, the governor of the Bank of England, addressing the United States Banker Association, New York. Idaho leader, the 26th of August, 1924. Here's the quote. Capital must protect itself in every possible way, both by combination and legislation. Debts must be collected. Mortgages foreclosed as rapidly as possible. When through process of law, the common people lose their homes, they will become more docile and more easily governed, ...through the strong arm of the government applied by a central power of wealth under leading financiers. These truths are well known among our principal men... ...who are now engaged in forming an imperialism to govern the world. By dividing the voters through the political party system... ...we can get them to expand their energies in fighting for questions of no importance. It is thus, by discreet action... We can ensure for ourselves that which has been so well planned and so successfully accomplished. If you think about what I just read, it's a crazy thing indeed. And before we jump in with Jason, I am going to read one more quote. This is from the Protocols of the Meeting of the Learned Elders of Zion, which was translated from Russian by Victor E. Marston. You are aware that the gold standard has been the ruin of the states which adopted it, for it has not been able to satisfy the demands for money, the more so that we have removed gold from circulation as much as possible. There's two quotes to get your mind in the right frame to talk about central banking. Let's jump in with Jason Lindgren. Cheers. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 119. Uh, For those of you who recognize, I'm a little under the weather. I am recovering from a surgery, actually. Anyhow, welcome, Jason.
1: Good morning, Crow.
0: How goes it, man?
1: Well, I had a bit of a rough night, but I'm okay now. I think you're in worse shape than me, though.
0: Well, on the upside, maybe in about five weeks, I'll be able to tackle moving my scope again. I finally got a thing done that I've been avoiding for a very long time and uh, it's not much fun but we'll get through it here. Do
1: you hear that ladies and gentlemen? New scope footage coming.
0: (laughs) Yeah I'm supposed to be able to lift things in five weeks so we will see. But anyhow, uh, we're going to cover central banking here today. And to be completely honest, Jason, there was so much more uh, I wanted to add into this episode. Uh, what I'm going to do is at some point I'll give some references out. Um, we'll cover the gist of things. Uh, this is an important episode, but uh, maybe maybe in the beginning of hour or two, I'll start to go over some of the sources so people can get down to the bottom of it. Do you have anything for the intro? I
1: don't, this is a huge subject and there's just a lot of data out there. So we did a lot of what we could. And of course there's more that can be added.
0: Well, so for people, Who have heard the term "hidden hand" all the time? It's kind of cryptic, and I'll tell you flat out what it means. We're basically talking about bankers. Um, That's what the hidden hand is referring to. Whenever you hear about the hidden hand involved in this or that, it's basically about banks, and it's basically about central banking. Uh, We'll get into these topics, but you know, of all the things we've covered, Jason, I don't think there's another thing we could possibly cover that is more all-encompassing and responsible for where we find ourselves in the modern age.
1: Well, the bottom line is the money is the control mechanism for everything.
0: Yeah, it's a bit ironic that really there's actually no money involved too, but we'll we'll get into these things. Um, So I'll, I'll just, I'll kick it straight to you. I'll try to keep up and I apologize in advance. I feel a little low energy today, but we'll get through it.
1: So let's start off with the definition of what a central bank is. A central bank is a national bank that provides financial and banking services for its country's government and commercial banking system, as well as implementing the government's monetary policy and the issuing of currency.
0: And actually, this is uh, the, this definition is a bit deceptive to me, because there, there used to be things called national banks that resemble central banks, but are absolutely not central banks in the way we recognize them today. And a lot of it has to do with interest rates, usury, things like that. But there were actually effective national banks before the modern age of central banking, which we will cover, that had their countries just booming, doing very well before this modern paradigm came in anyhow.
1: That's correct. A national bank is not a bad thing. It just means that the central government of a particular country has a bank that's keeping everything afloat, keeping it all even, making sure the flow of money is not too much, not too little. And it's generally a good thing. A central bank, on the other hand, in in the greater sense, is where we start talking about what's going on today, where they get countries into perpetual debt slavery. And that's what we're going to break down here.
0: Basically, for the scope of this conversation we're about to have, the central bank is basically a privately held corporate entity that serves itself, period. No intention of serving the country that it is supposedly central to. And uh, your next definition here, usury, uh, that's going to begin to demonstrate the problem here.
1: And this is what was going on way back when even. So the definition of usury, it is the lending of money with an interest charge for its use, especially the lending of money at exorbitant interest rates.
0: Right, and with the central banking system we have now, um, as everyone is probably aware, all money is made out of thin air, literally made out of thin air, and then usury is attached to it, and so it is loaned at interest right from the get-go. In other words, the next time you turn on your cable news, which you should never do, and you hear people arguing about balancing deficits or national budgets. It's a joke. Um, It's completely a joke. Every dollar ever made in any country that has a central bank immediately created debt. There is no way to create money right now without creating debt. But the interesting thing about usury, Jason, is as I went, I remember you know, what I was told when I was young, it was like anything above 3 or 4 percent was considered usury. When you try to get a definition now, you can't. And it's easy to find all kinds of definitions that accept uh, that it's not usury all the way up to like 15 or 20 percent. These are not true things. Back in the day in the 60s and the 70s, anything above a few percent was considered usury. And we should also mention that uh, much of the Middle East uh, the religion, in the religious aspects of uh, the Middle East, it was built into their belief system that usury could not happen and was immoral, just to put it on the record there.
1: And let's just throw this out here for you folks. Credit cards, money that's created out of nothing, literally. And what do they charge you? Well, if you have good credit, it might be under 10%. But how many of you have credit cards that are 19%, 21%, 29%? You see that quite commonly these days, especially if your credit is poop. So you think that's usury? I sure as hell do.
0: Well, it's crazy, Jason. As I was looking through uh, different sources for this episode, I found 33% hint, hint, hint all over the place. Um, if I remember correctly, back when I was younger, the idea of paying 30% interest on anything was I mean, y- you couldn't have even accepted it for a second. And yet now we find ourselves easily between 15 and 30% usury on almost all forms of loans from anything from credit cards to like a car loan or something like that.
1: Absolutely. So getting back to some mainstream history to start things off, the use of money as accounting units is thought to predate written history. Government control of money is documented in the ancient Egyptian economy, said to be 2750 to about 2150 BC. The Egyptians measured the value of goods with a central unit they called the shat. As with many other currencies throughout history, the shat was linked to gold. Sounds familiar, right? The value of a shat in terms of goods was defined by certain government administrations. Other cultures, such as in Asia Minor, would later create currencies in the form of gold and silver coins. In what is called the medieval and early modern periods, from mainstream history's point of view, I might add, a network of professional banks were established in southern and central Europe. These institutes are claimed to have built a new tier in their respective financial economies. The monetary systems were always said to still be controlled by government institutions, mainly through their coining privileges. Banks, however, could use book money to create deposits for their clients. Because of this, they had the possibility to issue, lend, and transfer money autonomously without direct governmental control. In order to consolidate the monetary system, a network of public exchange banks were established at the beginning of the 17th century in main European trade centers. The Amsterdam Wisselbank was founded as a first institute in 1609. Further exchange banks were located in Hamburg, Venice, and Nuremberg. The institutes offered a public infrastructure for cashless international payments. They aimed to increase the efficiency of international trade and to safeguard monetary stability. The exchange banks thus fulfilled many similar functions and had many of the same capabilities as modern central banks. The institutes even issued their own book currency
0: that was called Mark Banco. So I don't know what you found while you were researching, but I'll throw it on the record here early. Uh, What I found is that it is accepted commonly, as far as I know, that the Bank of England uh, in the city of London is the paradigm is the model for all central banks that followed, so we should get that on the record early. I don't know if you found anything different, Jason, about what ended up being the, the initial model for all the central banking that is basically taking over every country in this world.
1: Along those lines, yeah, especially in the United States, the first banks used the Bank of England as its template
0: right and of course the family Rothschild is behind all of it which i don't even think i need to mention but we will be covering these things uh by the time we get to the federal reserve demonstrating who the principal shareholders and these types of things are but just for the record bank of england apparently is the model where all central banking was replicated from so the three most important points
1: regarding the power of a central bank the power to regulate the amount of currency in circulation which would in turn govern inflation up or down the capability to control interest rates, and the fact that the money that is created is loaned to the country at interest, therefore creating perpetual debt slavery.
0: So here's an interesting thing, Jason. I found all kinds of documentation of people who used math to prove, what would you even say, monetary systems that would never have inflation, that would guarantee, say, 10% growth for a country each year. And these things were looked at heavily after the the Great Depression in the United States. Um, what you're looking at here in this bullet point is the flat out stating that you're gonna have inflation, you're gonna have recessions, you're gonna have all these things. And for the record, it is absolutely planned in any country that has a central bank, when these things occur, it was because it's planned to occur. And anyone can look up the models that were put forward, mathematical models for for a national type bank system that would never have inflation, that would maintain the value of money, that would give interest at low rates, all these types of things. So this is where we came from, apparently, or many countries came from at one point before central banking came. So just to be perfectly clear, uh, things like inflation or recessions or the loss of value on currency, these are all controllable things. And every time something bad happens in a central bank nation, it was because it was planned to happen. So it is claimed that the fall of empires is demonstrated by the percentage of population
1: that controls the overall wealth. In old Egypt, That fell when 4% of the population owned all the wealth. In Babylon, 3%. Old Persia, 2%. Ancient Greece, one half of 1%. When the Roman Empire fell, it is said that only 2,000 people owned it all. And it is said today that less than 1% own 90% of everything. And the source for this is the American Mercury Magazine New York from 1958. So if that's that old, goodness only knows what that percentage might even be today.
0: Well, you know, we're looking at acceptable timelines, but, it, you know, I found these records and I found them in more than one place. They do differ a little bit, but by basically what it's saying is we have a historical record that shows when all wealth is controlled by, you know, a small percentage of society that the fall of that country or nation is eminent. And what's crazy about this is, you know, 1958 someone was writing articles in the American Mercury magazine claiming that less than 1% already owned 90% of everything in the United States. But many people often point to the Vatican and Rome and the idea of the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman, they always claim, uh, 2000 people owned it all at that point. Um, So these are statistics that we can look back on, and if there is any accuracy to any of this timeline that is acceptable, what we're basically being told here is we are on the high end of the failure chart here, and there's no going back.
1: So this is something interesting I found while digging around. From the website JewishVirtualLibrary.org, under the heading Ancient Jewish History, Banking and Bankers. And I just want to put this out here. This is not an attack on the Jewish people as a whole. This is merely something from their own records that they're putting out there. And a lot of people do like to say that the Jews control everything and all that. So here we go. There is little likelihood that financial transactions played a prominent role in the pre-exilic epoch in Erez, Israel. According to the ethos of Jewish society... Then founded on a pronounced agrarian structure, lending was part of the assistance a man owed to his neighbor or brother in need. During the Babylonian era, Jews had greater opportunities to come into contact with a highly developed banking tradition and to participate in credit operations. After the exile, commerce and credit certainly had a place in Eras Israel. Though the society remained predominantly agrarian, Jerusalem had a number of wealthy families, including tax agents and landowners, who speculated and deposited their gains in the temple, which had in some ways the function of a national bank. Organized banking probably arose in conjunction with Maserat, or tithes, in particular Maser Sheni, and the pilgrimages to Jerusalem through the activities of the money changers. The use of Greek terms indicates a strong Hellenistic influence on the establishment of banking. Meanwhile, the Jewish communities forming in the Diaspora, the most important at first being that of Babylonia, were given an impulse toward a new way of life by the long-standing traditions of a capitalist type of economy existing around them. In Babylonia, Jews engaged in financial transactions. Some were farmers of taxes and customs, and the wealthiest of them were landowners. Among the latter were Huna, the head of the Academy of Sora, and Rav Ashi, However, Talmudic references show that the standards of an agrarian economy were still dominant and therefore gamblers and usurers were not thought trustworthy witnesses. Another important Jewish colony was to be found at Alexandria, center of the trade between the Mediterranean and the Arabian and Indian world where Jews were engaged not only in commerce and international trade, but in money lending as well. According to Josephus, a Jewish tax agent was able to make a loan of 3,000 talents. The alabarch Alexander Lysimachus, who loaned King Agrippa I 200,000 drachmas, was also the steward of Antonia, mother of Emperor Claudius. Another Alexandrian Jew was treasurer to Candace, queen of Ethiopia.
0: All right. So there's the story straight from the horse's mouth. You know, it's a funny thing, Jason. I remember when I was a kid and my family went to go see Fiddler on the Roof for the first time. And I remember asking my father, why is everyone always picking on the Jews for no good reason? And of course, he was a college professor and he went to explain it. But on the tale of All the research that I did for this episode, you can almost point to any given country where they were trying to remove the Jews or sects of Judaism, and every single one that I saw was pointing at one thing their money-lending practices, specifically around usury and other, other things like that. Um, in the second hour, we're going to say some astounding things about Germany um, that most people may not be aware of, but I don't think we can do it here, because we know that even adult conversation about topics like this in hour one seems to be unacceptable to YouTube.
1: Right. So jumping ahead through history, I think we've established that Jewish bankers were a very common and prominent thing in history. It is claimed that the men of the 15th century were paid so well that their living standard was not repeated until the 19th century before the central banking. Many great cathedrals were built in this time due to the claim the average worker only worked 14 weeks a year, having 160 to 180 holidays. The free time and good pay allowed skilled craftsmen to donate their skills to build these edifices, never seen at this level before, and definitely not since. As a side note, the technology for the stained glass and many elements in the buildings seems to have been lost to time.
0: This is a key, key point here, and I did a heck of a lot of research around it to see if this was even possibly true, and I think it probably is. You know, we've talked a long time on many shows, many episodes about how the heck did those cathedrals get built and how come we haven't seen anything like it since? Well, this is one hell of a good explanation from my point of view. So the claim here is that before central banking came to places, there were times, and this is probably part of why history is obscured, because if we think of the 15th century, hardly anyone here is going to be thinking, oh, they live better than we do now. I found plenty of accounts that that pointed to not only did they live better, they didn't work anywhere near like people work today. The claim of 14 weeks worked by skilled tradesmen, and they still had more than enough money to have good clothes, good food, all these things gave them so much free time that they could take their skilled crafts and go do a thing like build a cathedral. Um, And I looked all around this, and I think it's a plausible explanation. I don't think we can ever prove it, but my point here is, look what happens when a society is cared for when money is not misused in the way we currently see it, the elevation of human endeavor can soar. I'm asking everyone listening, have you ever seen anything that compares to some of those cathedrals? When you look at them, it just feels like a higher-minded endeavor. And again, much of the technology, not just from the stained glass, which is flat out documented, they don't know how to get many of the colors or actually implement the stained glass in the way it was then. Um, You can go to some of those cathedrals and see glass from that period still in existence, and it does look better than modern glass, but the actual building and implementation of the structures themselves, all apparently certain points of it lost to time.
1: Next, let's talk about the reign of Elizabeth I, who sat on the throne from 1558 to 1603. A small number of Marinos Spanish Jews converted to a sham form of Christianity in order to settle in London, many of them being goldsmiths, and began accepting deposits as a sort of bank. It was at this point that usury was implemented. The receipts for these gold deposits became the forerunner for the fraud-based fractional system of banking. In a short time, loans to the crown went from 8% per annum and quickly exceeded 33% per annum. 33, huh?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Of course, it's 33. But we just in the last point pointed out that in the 15th century, um, there were all these higher minded endeavors because it precedes the banking that is going to be creeping over the entire world. And uh, the point made here is that from 1558 to 1603, we can actually put a thumbprint on when the first kind of runs at how the modern banking is going to be built are being shown here, and it's all based on usury, isn't it? And not only that, it is what some people call crypto-Jews. For some reason, these people were Jewish, and they were hiding their Jewishness. I found endless accounts of this, even into the American government. How many people, after all, understand that Alexander Hamilton, uh, Secretary of the Treasury from the United States, was probably Jewish? For some reason, they hid these things. Go figure, Jason.
1: Go figure. During the 17th century, large numbers of Jews were expelled from Spain by Isabella I of Castile and Ferdinand II of Aragon. This on the count of their involvement in usury and unethical business practices. The expelled Jews settled in Holland. This group would then go on to wreak havoc in London, where later the first central bank model would be established. So we're seeing a pattern here, aren't we, Crow?
0: Yeah, I just threw these in because, I mean, there is a count after account: um, Napoleon, uh, Germany, all, all kinds of places. I mean, there are literally, I could probably list 10 of them where the exact same thing was true. They did not want this class of people coming in, and it was nothing to do with their religion. It was nothing to, well, <laughs> I guess that could be argued because the money seems to be intertwined, but my point here, it was Almost wholly about banking practices and usury, which are the foundational cobblestones that build the central banking we're all under today.
1: In the late 1600s, the Bank of England was formed. This bank would become the model for all central banks that would follow. The bank issued money that had no value created from thin air and all at high interest rate or usury, creating debt for every dollar or whatever you want to call it created. As with the creation of all central banks, it was created with coercion and sleight of hand. And of course, naturally, with the Rothschild family behind it all as time moves on.
0: Right. If you go look at histories of how we will list, um, at at the turn of the 19th century, we will list how many central banks there were. And anyone can take any one of those banks and go look up the history and see how they were implemented with coercion, with sleight of hand, any number of things to get these central banks implemented. And almost every war, by the way, in the modern age, um, and this is really not arguable in my view, you can look at the economy of a country that had no central bank prior to the war, whatever war you want to look at and then look at what happened after to the economy of that country once a a central bank is implemented. And of course, the same old players like Rothschilds are in every single one of them. But here we are, 1600s, Bank of England is formed in the city of London. And this is really when almost, you know, the majority of the world's woes are going to stem from this very bullet point right here, Bank of England's formation.
1: In 1691, Massachusetts was the first colony to print its own money, called Colonial Script or Bills of Credit. Pennsylvania, New York, Delaware, and Maryland quickly followed suit. This allowed the first colonies to control their financial affairs without inflation and very low taxes. This is not possible under private banking systems.
0: So what you're looking at here is boom and bust in um, case after case where I could find a national bank that was not private, corporatized central bank or a nation that was printing its own money. You found boom times. You found plenty. You found people reaching higher human endeavors. And as soon as that was changed, which on the tail of the, you know, right after this bullet point, we're going to show you how quickly um, these ideas were were shut down by the Roth trials and the central banking cartels. Um, and the exact opposite becomes true after afterwards, then it's a struggle, then uh, economies crash, there's recessions, the value of money becomes worthless, and on and on and on." In 1763,
1: Benjamin Franklin visited London and was shocked to observe slums and widespread poverty and all as a direct result of the Central Bank of England.
0: As a matter of fact, uh, I read numerous accounts where other nations that did not yet have a central bank had booming economies, where even if people didn't have enough money in those countries, Russia was one. They were sent on cruises and they didn't work as much as people work today. But London... And there were two or three countries, don't remember them all, actually shut their ports of call because they did not want to see the oppressed workers of these areas, seeing people from Russia who they'd been told were living much worse than they were, living high on the hog on luxury cruises, even if it was a farmer or some other occupation that typically wouldn't allow such a thing. In 1764, the Bank
1: of England forced the currency bill designed to restrict the colony's right to print their own money. Within one year, the colony's economy crashed and more than half of the population became
0: unemployed. All right. A lot of people uh, will probably question the veracity of this. It's documented. I don't think it's really arguable. One of the places you can go to look these up with all kinds of cited sources, I try to find three sources for things like this when I do a show of this kind, but I'm going to mention a book right here. It's called A History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind. The author is Stephen Mitford Goodson. Uh, The reason I'm going to, and I don't do this very often, but the reason I'm going to cite this book for people is because it is so well documented and he gives so many places where you can go to confirm the information that's being put forward. And here in this bullet point, we see how quickly uh, the new colonies that were doing pretty damn well printing their own money with the, the chief concern being the the, the folks who lived there being switched over by the banking cartels, lickety split to get them into a situation where money has no value. It's created out of thin air. It exists for the private corporations benefit only and uh, backbreaking usury piled on all of it.
1: And to back all that up, some of the Founding Fathers are said to have been strongly opposed to the formation of a central banking system due to the fact that England tried to place the colonies under the monetary control of the Bank of England. This is said by many historians to be the last straw of oppression which led directly to the American Revolutionary War. Others in the colonies were strongly in favor of a central bank. Robert Morris, as superintendent of finance, helped to open the Bank of North America in 1782 and has been called by Thomas Goddard the father of the system of credit and paper circulation in the United States. As ratification in early 1781 of the Articles of Confederation had extended to Congress the sovereign power to generate bills of credit, it passed later that year an ordinance to incorporate a privately subscribed national bank using the Bank of England as a template. However, it was thwarted in fulfilling its intended role as a nationwide central bank due to objections of alarming foreign influence and fictitious credit. Well, that sounds really familiar. (laughs) Favoritism to foreigners and unfair policies against less corrupt state banks issuing their own notes, such that Pennsylvania's legislature repealed its charter to operate within the Commonwealth in 1785. Wow, it sounds like some of these politicians and bankers back then may have actually had some scruples left.
0: Well, you know, this is the time. This is the switchover. This is the part of history um, or a piece of history that's obscured. And the reason it's obscured is because people were being cared for. And by, by the very place that was supposed to govern them, actually doing things like govern um, and not just govern uh, in a political way, but actually with the concern of the people. And so much of this has to do with the onset of the central banks. And, yeah, I read account after account of people standing up against the Rothschild and bank cartels, um, but every single time they were shut down. And a lot of times war did it. Um, they blackmailed them. They threatened them with removing their employment and. Any number of ways to get those banks implemented. There is not a single central bank that I looked at, and we again we will list them all where coercion, sleight of hand, or plain out dishonesty was used to implement it.
1: And to give you a little backstory, in case you don't know who the Rothschilds are. The Rothschild family is a wealthy Jewish family descending from Mayor Amschel Rothschild, who lived from 1744 until 1812, a court factor to the German landgraves of Hesse Castle in the free city of Frankfurt, Holy Roman Empire, who established his banking business in the 1760s. Unlike most previous court factors, Rothschild managed to bequeath his wealth and established an international banking family through his five sons, who established themselves in London, Paris, Frankfurt, Vienna, and Naples. The family was elevated to noble rank in the Holy Roman Empire and the United Kingdom. During the 19th century, the Rothschild family possessed the largest private fortune in the world, officially, as well as the largest private fortune in modern world history. The family's wealth was divided among various descendants, and today their interests cover a diverse range of fields, including financial services, real estate, mining, energy, mixed farming, winemaking, and nonprofit organizations.
0: Yeah, basically, if something exists in the world, they own part of it or all of it. The one thing I could not find in this research was a satisfactory explanation for how how the Rothschild family started, so to speak. I mean, how did they go from just average people to having all this wealth? There are all kinds of different accounts, and I can't accept any of them. I don't know what you found, Jason, but it seems like the actual, I guess we could call it the beginning, at whatever point they started to have so much money um, that they could push their way in almost anywhere. uh, Did you find any satisfactory explanation for how that went down? The
1: official history is that they started small in the ghetto where they were at, and started doing just what they do, small-time banking, and it built up to the point where he got a favor to get into the, the noble houses, and it just kind of spiraled from there. Now, whether that's actually what went on, goodness only knows at this point. I mean, it's kind of believable, but I always suspect that there's a lot more to the story than that.
0: Yeah, I can't accept any of it. I mean, uh, logically, if you were a king and a queen and you had this, you know, no power, any nobody who basically just had money and he was pressing you for a debt, why wouldn't you just remove him? I mean, think of the story of the Knights Templar, Jason, where we're told a king got tired of uh, being in debt to them, so he killed them all on Friday the 13th. You see, the, the logical... Or or, or the things we're told about one part of history don't jive with what we're being told here. And again, I just don't find any acceptable explanation for how this happened, because I will never understand how a king or a queen sitting in power with a standing army didn't just say, you know what, I don't owe you anything, get out not just get out, but get out of my country, and by the way, I don't owe you anything. How hard would it have been for them to do that? But that's not what happened here. So to to drop it where it sits, I found no explanation that I can accept of how the Rothschild clan, if that's what they are, actually got to be so rich that they could basically do whatever they wanted.
1: Right, the whole thing is highly suspect, and this is where I think these dark power, secret society kind of things behind the throne and everything, that's where that comes in. There has to be something else that's not put out in the mainstream history to really explain why these things are going on.
0: You know, that's another good point, Jason. So many people have a problem with Freemasonry, and and endlessly we say, you know, the guy next to you that lives next to you in a lodge is not a bad guy, but there is, you know, Freemasonry earned its name, and all this banking nonsense that has come to us in the modern age, we can point over and over and over to high-ranking Freemasons who help implement the central banks, who help kill... Um, legislation that would stop it, who helped begin wars so that they can knock a country over and get central banking in there. So yeah, we know who the players are, but you know, it's, um, it would just be nice to wake up one day and have an actual history that we could accept. You know, that's, I guess that's what I'm getting at here. No, I agree with that totally. Amshel
1: Rothschild is credited for having said, give me control of the economics of a country and I care not who makes our laws. The few who understand the system will either be so interested with its profits or so dependent on its favors, there will be no opposition from that
0: class. So here's my point. Here's his quote. Give me control of the economics of a country, and I care not who makes our laws. Are you telling me that every king and queen, if there was such a time, were so dimwitted they didn't understand this principle? How in the hell did he ever get control of the economics of a country when there were sitting rulers and standing armies? I'm just saying, man. I know I'm asking the same question over and over, but there it is, Jason.
1: Now getting into the United States, the president, directors, and company of the Bank of the United States, commonly known as the First Bank of the United States, was a national bank chartered for a term of 20 years by the United States Congress on February 25th, 1791. It followed the Bank of North America, the nation's first de facto central bank. Establishment of the Bank of the United States was part of a three-part expansion of federal fiscal and monetary power, along with a federal mint and excise taxes championed by Alexander Hamilton, first secretary of the Treasury. Hamilton believed a national bank was necessary to stabilize and improve the nation's credit and to improve handling of the financial business of the United States government under the newly enacted Constitution. The first bank building, located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, within Independence National Historical Park, was completed in 1797 and is a National Historic Landmark for its historic and architectural significance.
0: Well, look at the players here again. We're looking at a person. For some reason, they had to hide the fact that they were Jewish. Why? Why, I'm asking. And what are they involved in? They're involved with the central banking coming to bear here. And of course, Mayor Amshel Rothschild was
1: the principal shareholder of the First Bank of the United States. Upon learning that the bank's charter may not be renewed, he stated that either the application for renewal is granted, or the United States will find itself involved in a disastrous war. Also, I will teach those impudent Americans a lesson and bring them back to colonial status.
0: So here's the thing, man. The guy did get power. Somehow he got control of the wealth of nations, so he didn't have to give a damn who was making laws about what. But I think it's pretty well documented, and I accept that World War I, World War II, the Boer War, actually any number of wars you can point to were facilitated by this banking cartel to do mainly one thing, to tip a country over, get it away from national banking that had a concern for the people who lived in the country, and get a central banks' system in so that basically everyone could live how we live today and anyone can look around. Are we living that great right now, I would ask, under central banking?
1: Yes and no. We have what I consider the veneer of society, meaning everything on the surface looks pretty okay. Very nice for some people. But if you scratch that thin veneer, you see what's underneath real quick.
0: Well, the soup looks good, but just don't bother to taste it, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Moving along to the second bank of the United States... After five years, the federal government chartered a banking successor, the Second Bank of the United States, from 1816 until 1836. James Madison signed the charter with the intention of stopping runaway inflation that had plagued the country during the five-year interim. It was basically a copy of the first bank with branches all across the country. Andrew Jackson, who became president in 1828, denounced the bank as an engine of corruption. His destruction of the bank was a major political issue in the 1830s and shaped the Second Party system as Democrats in the states opposed the banks and the Whigs supported them. He was unable to get the bank dissolved but refused to renew its charter. Jackson attempted to counteract this by executive order requiring all federal land payments to be made in gold or silver. This produced the Panic of 1837.
0: Well, you know, I guess we got to ask, how come there was only one Jackson? How come human beings living in this time, not enough of them cared to do what was correct? I mean, in the opening statement here, uh, oh, we need a central bank because of runaway inflation. Well, we all know, you know, with hindsight inflation is part of the central banking scheme. When it happens, it was planned to happen in the same way the Great Depression was planned to happen, in the same way the devaluation of money to be basically worthless promissory note based on debt. It's all meant to happen. And so here we can look back and I saw a number of people who tried to stand up against this. But as we can, as we can know for sure, none of them succeeded. From what I can see, even from mainstream history,
1: it was too much of a pain to keep trying to control the colonies, which became the United States, of course, militaristically, so they just did it financially. No matter how often people tried to kick out these central banking schemes, they just came back and, of course, finally did get their hooks in us completely in 1913.
0: Well, by this point, you know, you're you're basically it's more than a Goliath. You're not just looking at the Rothschilds and the members of the banking cartel. Now you've got London, um, the British Empire and all all this kind of stuff backing the effort. But again, you know, they did start wars just to simply get their banks in place. So, you know, these people were up against a mountain and many of them pushed. But look what happened. None of them, none of them succeeded. The mountain rolled them over.
1: And it really seems pretty likely that the American Revolutionary War was over money to some degree or another.
0: I don't think there's any modern historical account of a war that mattered that can't be tied to what we're talking about here in some way. Um, All the major wars, and, and you know, the reason I say this is not arguable and the reason I gave you the title of that book is it gives you sources to go look up the economies and the banking and the lifestyles prior to the war and then what happened after the war when the central banking was put in and you know we all know how we live today everyone's in debt you can't afford to go to school you pay 30 percent interest on nearly anything you beg or borrow for it's just it's beyond the pale it's out of control when napoleon came to
1: power the first thing he did was establish the bank of france replacing 15 jewish-owned private banks this national bank would be one of the main reasons napoleon was removed from power
0: I think it is the reason that Napoleon had to fight tooth and nail. And I think the accounts of Napoleon's existence, if there was such a man, are probably nearly opposite of what actually happened. And you can base this by looking at things like the the national economies before and after what happened here. You know, funny thing about the Napoleon research that I did around this is he's constantly trying to remove... Jewish society from his country, but it's never about hatred. It's never about religion. It's about one thing, the culture of corruption based around how they dealt with money, usury, lending, and these types of things. That's what it was every time. Uh, It's crazy, Jason.
1: Napoleon was quoted as saying, "...I have undertaken to reform the Jews, but I have not endeavored to draw more of them into my realm." It is necessary to reduce, if not destroy, the tendency of Jewish people to practice a very great number of activities that are harmful to civilization and to public order in society in all countries of the world. It is evident that Napoleon was referring to their banking and business practices primarily.
0: And that's what it was about. There's actually a lot more to the quote on the tail end. I cut that short, but this is what it was about. The first thing this man did Apparently, supposedly, when he took power was to get a national bank that was concerned with the human beings living in the country going. Um, So it goes to show these were real fights, in in my view, and the removal of the people who were bringing this kind of sick disease called central banking, that's what he was fighting against, apparently.
1: Moving back to the United States, from the years 1837 to 1862, we have what's called the Free Banking Era period, and in this time, only state-chartered banks existed. They could issue banknotes against gold and silver coins, and the states heavily regulated their own reserve requirements, interest rates for loans and deposits, and the necessary capital ratio, and all of that. These banks had existed since 1781 in parallel with the banks of the United States. The Michigan Act of 1837 allowed the automatic chartering of banks that would fulfill its requirements without special consent of the state legislature. This legislation made creating unstable banks easier by lowering state supervision in states that adopted it. The real value of a bank bill was often lower than its face value, and the issuing bank's financial strength generally determined the size of the discount. By 1797, there were 24 chartered banks in the United States. With the beginning of the free banking era, there were 712. During the free banking era, the banks were short-lived compared to today's commercial banks, with an average lifespan of five years. About half of the banks failed, and about a third of which went out of business because they could not redeem their notes. During the free banking era, some local banks took over the functions of a central bank. In New York, the New York Safety Fund provided deposit insurance for member banks. In Boston, the Suffolk Bank guaranteed that banknotes would trade at near par value and acted as a private banknote clearinghouse.
0: You know, when you look at this logically, there's going to be maybe two kinds of people who help facilitate this go on. The first were just dishonest people who traded wealth or bribery or whatever um, to do the wrong thing. But there's another group of people here um, that I think it's important to point out. They're people who had no vested interest or concern for the folks living in the United States or basically any country they went into. Um, They seem to have allegiance elsewhere, to put it lightly. The National
1: Banking Act of 1863, besides providing loans in the Civil War effort of the Union, included provisions to create a system of national banks. They were to have higher standards concerning reserves and business practices than state banks. Recent research indicates that state monopoly banks had the lowest long-run survival rates. The Office of Comptroller of the Currency was created to supervise these banks. It was also used to create a uniform national currency. To achieve this, all national banks were required to accept each other's currencies at par value. This eliminated the risk of loss in case of bank default. The notes were printed by the comptroller of the currency to ensure uniform quality and to prevent counterfeiting. And lastly, to finance the civil war. National banks were required to secure their notes by holding treasury securities intending to enlarge the market and raise its liquidity.
0: So, you know, Jason, there's an endless litany of things that I do not accept about the Civil War. Even, you know, it's I've mentioned before that there was a lot of stonemasons because the granite was so good here in the state of Rhode Island. Many of the uh, the things they were making with that granite were monuments going down to Gettysburg, the war memorial down there. But in the research we did here, again, you can point to banking as one of the ma- major driving forces behind the supposed war. And again, I don't accept the history we've been you know handed around the civil war but maybe that's that's fodder for a different episode.
1: Yeah. Now we're getting up into the 20th century and what's interesting here is at the start of the 20th century there were only 18 central banks and here they are. The Swedish Riksbank of 1668, Bank of England 1694, Banco de Espana 1782, Bank de France 1800, Bank of Finland 1812, the Netherlands Bank 1814, Norges Bank, 1816, Austerisch National Bank, 1816, Denmark's National Bank, 1818, Banco de Portugal, 1846, National Bank of Belgium, 1850, Bank of Indonesia, 1828, German Reichsbank, 1876, Bulgarian National Bank, 1879, National Bank of Romania, 1880, Bank of Japan, 1882, National Bank of Serbia, 1884, and La Banca d'Italia, 1893.
0: What a difference a hundred years makes, eh, Jason? So here at <laughs> the beginning, yeah, here at the beginning of the 1900s, uh, we had 18 central banks. And by the way, some of these banks, like I think Bank of Japan may have been one, uh, at some point, some of these places got central banking, fought it back, but then were overtaken again. But think about what we're saying here when you look at all these places, Sweden, England, Spain, France, Finland. um, Almost every one of the countries mentioned uh, has one thing in common, and that's that they were run by supposed royalty. Just putting it out there, man. Early in
1: 1907, New York Times Annual Financial Review published Paul Warburg's, who was a partner of kuhn and Company's first official reform plan that was entitled A Plan for a Modified Central Bank, in which he outlined remedies that he thought might avert panics. Early in 1907, Jacob Schiff, the chief executive officer of Kuhn and Company, in a speech to the New York Chamber of Commerce warned that, "...unless we have a central bank with adequate control of credit resources, this country is going to undergo the most severe and far-reaching money panic in its history." The Panic of 1907 hit full stride in October. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence that the elite bankers staged the panic, which, of course, worked massively in their favor.
0: Of course. So here's the lie being told that the central bank's going to cure all these things. They create their little fear porn panic. And then, of course, not long after this, you're going to see what's called the Great Depression. Uh, And in my book, you know, it's not just we have other things that maybe history hasn't written into the pages yet. Like what about the Great Recession of 2008? That's a thing, right? But it goes to show you that they told the people and sold and used the media to say the exact opposite of what was true, which is demonstrated in this bullet point to get the central banks in place. Anyhow, Jason, we're close to the top of the first hour. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap up and get ready for hour two?
1: Well, hour two, we're going to get into, of course, the Federal Reserve and all the terrible things that happened afterwards once it got put into place.
0: We're even going to go so far as to show uh, how all this has contributed to what could well be the extinction of certain races of people. We'll actually give the stats and the supposed historic accounts of what numbers could be recovered from and what cannot. Um, You know, I'll be the buzzkill now. Uh, We're supposedly lower. We can't recover, according to historical statistics, for white people and certain parts of Asia. Uh, We will cover these things. And you can, like so many other things, in this world that are not the way they could be can be drawn straight back to the central bank. Anyhow, that does bring the first hour to a close for episode 119. Count the ways. At the posting of this episode there will be 119 free hours of content at crow777radio.com. You do not need a login to get there. And particularly on an episode like this, the second hour really matters. We could not do what we do anymore without a private website because the things we're going to cover in the second hour would almost certainly be censored here. There it is, man. Hope to see you all at crow777radio.com for hour two. Cheers.